I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself, or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. I heard you got a big surprise last night. I did get a big surprise last night, and uh, it was it was not a welcome surprise, but it's also not a terrible <laughs> surprise, and it proves that I am the worst person in history. Um, so our dog, Bobby, who we had for 12 years, died in December while we were away mm. on uh, on holiday vacation, Christmas vacation, right? Yeah. And we couldn't get back, and it was a whole thing. But, I mean, he'd been dying for... a couple of years so this was we knew right it was was coming right um and so so it was okay on that front and your poor dog sitter oh well so the good news (laughs) yeah right wouldn't that be terrible Um, (laughs) that happened to me once but anyway oh my god you have to tell me that um no so he went to our vet who has a um a boarding kennel right um, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he's been oh, going there good. for years. He knows our vet. The vet's office is downstairs. The the boarding kennel is upstairs. Right? It's super mm-hmm. organic. Really, very you know, <laughs> dog conscious. Right? So <laughs> good. Uh, he loved it. Never had a problem with him there. Uh, and anyway, so he passed. Uh, he got real sick real quick there, and uh, uh-huh. and the vet called us and was like, "Hey." And I always told her that she was going to have to be the one to make the call because right. I would be dragging Bobby behind me right now if I because <laughs> I love that dog. Yeah. So he was anyway. Um, so he went very peacefully, and he went with the. Uh, I was going to say with the dentist. He went with the dentist. He knows him. <laughs> Um, but anyway, good. so That's yeah, the so, the, possible thing. so the vet knew him. She'd been taking care of him for years, making this a really long story. So anyway, so he passed and we live in a four story townhome in the middle, in the outer edges of downtown Austin. So real urban, right? No yard. And Bobby did well <laughs> with the stairs. And for those of you at home counting, I live in a house with 80, eight zero stairs, right? So wow. that's a lot of effing stairs. And, um, so after Bobby passed, I said, hey, I love dogs, but I don't want to get another one, not while we live here, right? And I told everybody many times, and I told James, my husband, many times, right? Even just sort of offhanded mm-hmm. comments while I'm washing the dishes, gazing wistfully out the window, right? I might uh-huh. say something like, I'd love to have a dog, but not in this house. Oh, my gosh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> not with four stories and no yard. Because you know what that means? That Makes means, sense. And, pardon? Makes sense. You got to walk the dog three or four times a day. And Bobby could not go, not to, so Bobby could not go poo, right? Mm-hmm. Anywhere other than the dog park. Oh, so you had to go to the dog park every We time. could not do it on a leash. So I had to drive oh a mile 
three times a day. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, through through downtown Austin, which sometimes that mile was like <sighs> maybe ten minutes. Sometimes yeah. it once took me forty five minutes. <laughs> So I didn't want another dog here, right? So last night, uh, we're sitting on the couch and James says, Oh, you know, um, I had this surprise and I wasn't sure what... I'm making him sound weird. He doesn't talk like that. Um, But he was real hedgy about this surprise that he had. Uh And I was like, oh shit, we don't have any money? Like, what's the surprise? Because this sounds bad, (laughs) right? Right. Right. He holds up his laptop and there's a picture of this uh, small terrier puppy, right? And he's like... Her name's Olive Ann, and I put in an application for her, and we're number four. And I was like, withdraw the application. I mean, not even for a moment was I like, oh, I'm so touched. That's such a sweet, thoughtful game. No. Worst person. Um, Wow. Then he made the laptop dance around in the air a bit as if the dog was alive on the screen. James wants a dog. I'm like, all right, I get it. This is it's for me, but it's not for me, right? In the same way that every gift I've ever bought him is a gift for him, but it's really a gift for for me. (laughs) Totally. Right. This is my frying pan. I'm gonna give it to you. Right. Right. Um, so we'll see. We're number four on the list. We might get it, we might not. What complicates the issue for me is our friends Adam and Carmen have adopted and got the puppy, uh, uh, let me rephrase that. The reason James knows about this dog is that his friend Adam at work adopted a puppy through some agency. I, I didn't really get that involved in the conversation beyond I'm going to have to go to the dog park in the rain again. Um, mm-hmm. And so the sales pitch that James gave to the agency is if we get Olive then she can play with her litter mate because I'm best friends with the guy that just adopted this dog, right? This other dog. So, so we'll see. We we will see. Well, you know, this dog is not going to require that you drive her to the dog park. I hadn't even thought about that because in my world, all dogs have to be driven to the dog park. <laughs> this dog will poop on the sidewalk. That's I promise what I you. Did for no lie, twelve years. <laughs> it's not like I can't believe it. I mean, I do believe it. But oh, impo- that's, I mean, that's for a insane. couple years, we had a house with a yard, right? So it wasn't all mm-hmm. the time. Um, but well, hey, you could move. Well, that's been my campaign for the past fourteen years in Texas. Um, <laughs> you move back to California. Uh-huh, yeah. We, now that we got this dog, we really need to move back to California. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. It's the way, I drove Bobby to California um, when we knew that he was legitimately dying, right? Yeah. Um, so that way I, I could have that. a. So that way he would know what home was. Right, right, right. <laughs> of course, I'm sure he was grateful. <laughs> oh, he loved it. Every second of it. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Um, you took him to Palm Springs or Long Beach? Uh, just Palm Springs. I thought about uh-huh. taking him um, out into Long Beach, but uh, it just felt like uh, it just felt too much, too much trouble. It, the weird thing is, yeah. like, when we get out to Palm Springs, leaving Palm Springs feels like so much trouble. Really? Yeah, because it's two hours in traffic. And then, you know, when you get there anywhere in L.A., you still have to, like, park your car. Um, what are you doing for the day? Right? Yeah, and exactly. Th- exactly. When you, 
drive in, then you have to make plans to see people or not tell anybody that you're coming. And hi, everybody in LA. Now I've always let you all know when I'm in town. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it just, it just gets very logistically complicated, right? There is no, yep. oh, let's just drive into LA. It's like, okay, we'll go to little Tokyo and then we'll go um, down to Long Beach. And then by that time, it's time to go back into the desert. So, yeah. hey, so speaking yeah. of, that's kind of been my week aside from like work stuff, which is fine. Um, what about you? You've been on the road. Oh, yeah. I was going to say nothing has happened, but I actually, um, so last Wednesday in San Francisco, the smoke from the forest fires was so bad that the sun never came up. It was a dark red all day long, and it was terrifying because I remember thinking, I actually had a, an appointment at seven o'clock that morning and it's usually light. And I thought, wow, it sure got dark in the morning fast. And I, you know, I went to the appointment and the woman was like, yeah, you know, how come it's still dark? And really, like, we don't know. And it just, the day just went on and it never got light. And I remember thinking at about 11 o'clock in the morning, what am I going to do if it's one o'clock in the afternoon and it's still midnight, except for this crazy red sky. And, you know, one o'clock came around and it was still midnight except for the crazy red sky. And it was just really freaky. So I started thinking about leaving right then. I just wanted to get out of San Francisco. Um, it was it was just so bad. We didn't smell the smoke because we have a marine layer that comes in underneath the, uh, you know, every, every whatever. Uh-huh. And um, the smoke was above the marine layer. So it did smell like smoke, which is good because that would have been super apocalyptic. But it was just this crazy red color like the world was ending. And it was it was too much for me, and I wanted to leave. And I talked to Brent about it, and he didn't want to go. He wasn't, you know, he didn't want to go that day for sure. He wasn't ready to go. He had to work, and it, it turns out that he works for this company that has this rule that sure you're working from home, but you have to work from home. You can't work from Arizona, and there's some liability around that, some legal thing that that I guess made them make that rule. But so he was talking to his boss uh, why he even brought it up. I don't know. He'd just go to Arizona. No one would ever know. But he asked his boss about it, and his boss told him about this new rule. So he's like, you know, I'm sorry, I can't go to Arizona, but you can go. So I packed up, and I left. I wait, actually waited until Saturday. I didn't want to leave on Wednesday because things were just too crazy. And then on Thursday, the sun came up again, thank God. Um, so I felt a little bit better about not leaving immediately. And I had work to do on Thursday and Friday. So Saturday morning, I packed up at like 3 o'clock in the morning and left i drove 12 hours straight to come out here to arizona oh my god at three o'clock in the morning for 12 hours yeah i mean i usually get up pretty early anyway but it was just i wanted to avoid any traffic you know for saturday Mm. and and just by the time i figured by the time it was 11 or 12 i'd be halfway here and it would seem like nothing so it was a lot easier that way i think but anyway i'm in arizona now and there's no smoke and there's you know the sky is the normal color blue so that's nice. Although I hear in San Francisco it's getting better. So thank God for that, too. I can't even imagine, like, when when we left L.A., um, fires were just starting to pop up on the mountains, right? So you yeah. might smell the smoke and maybe, maybe, maybe you would see a lot of the smoke. Um, right. And that felt kind of sketchy. Like, oh, God, this, is, this global warming stuff is kind of real. Uh-oh. And yeah. uh, to have your sky be orange in the middle of a pandemic with an authoritarian right? in office, I can't even right? imagine how Blade Runner that was. 
it was crazy and it i just i think i have post-traumatic stress disorder now from it because i keep having flashbacks to this guy <laughs> being orange with this like emotional content to it and i'm like oh man i don't need more therapy i, I, I quit going to therapy forever and, and now i'm probably gonna have to go back just because of the stupid sky uh, for hell sure yeah. <laughs> what do you do when the sky's on fucking fire? I mean, you're what not are even tell dead me? yet and you're surrounded not, by flames. You know, <laughs> I know, right? But I don't think in these cases therapy is helpful because it's not my problem. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, anyway, man. so that's that's what I've been up to. It's been nice and quiet here and it's we've been having a peaceful time. Isn't that the best? I love nice and quiet. So today, what are we going to talk about? So great question. Um, let's start with, this is episode two of us trying to figure out, like, what is our podcast, right? And uh, I've told a couple of my friends that, like, oh, I'm doing this podcast with Juliet. And, nice. Um, my friend Terry was like, oh, gosh, uh, I think, you know, a podcast with you and Juliet, that would be interesting. And I was like, yeah, we <laughs> think so, too. That's why we we're doing it. We hope everyone will think so. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then when I told him the concept of the show, right? And bear in mind, this is this is a friend, right? Like a really good friend. He said, "Yes." well, what gives you guys the right to do that? <laughs> I think we're the most qualified. Well, I mean, yes, having been raised Catholic, both of us, uh, we're very judgy, right? Yeah, totally. Oh, when you boy, grow up yes. with God over your shoulder the entire first eight <laughs> years of your life, you get judgy, right? Yes. Um, and certainly a lot of people need to apologize to us. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> Every day. Um, so with that in mind... This is Apologies Accepted, a podcast where we evaluate and criticize and discuss public apologies. Uh, it's obviously meant as lighthearted, fun, comedic uh, yeah. traipsing through racism and sexism and all kinds of horrors. And, you know, I apologize in advance because I'm going to try and not be offensive and i think most reasonable people minus terry would realize <laughs> i'm actually not trying i'm not promoting violence or and or whatever right i mean whatever whatever the topic is um sure and that's a lot i don't again, think we need to worry about that it's not like we have a true crime podcast or anything right I, Speaking of which, spooky Halloween. Spooky this is our Halloween, Halloween. episode. And, and great segue uh, into <laughs> our topic for today. So I'm done with the pandemic. I'm, I'm over it. I'm ready for fall to get here. Nice change of yeah. season, right? And yeah. so I was thinking like, okay, what sort of Halloween apology thing has there been? And bang. This pops straight into mind, right? Um, yep. And so checked with you to see if we could do it. And you said yes. And then I got super excited. And then I got not excited. And then I got excited <laughs> again. I was surprised that you proposed it because it never would have occurred to me. I don't think I even knew that Orson Welles apologized. And, you know, uh, 
I sort of took the whole okay. So I think maybe like from a from a from a narrative. Uh, what what am I going to say after narrative? The word narrative always just sounds so good to me, right? I just <laughs> like to say it. Um, but do we need to tell people what we're our, what what our apology is? I think yeah, I so, busted right into that. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, I'm really curious about like when this whole. Uh, War of the Worlds, which is what we're talking about, uh, hit your radar and what you heard about it and then what you've discovered through your research, right? Yeah. Yeah. When did I first hear about War of the Worlds? I don't know. I was probably around Halloween when I was a kid. Um, Maybe my dad told me that um, there had been a... He was not alive during this uh, broadcast. Well, he was alive, but he was very, very young, and I don't think he listened to it. But um, but he did tell me that there had been a broadcast about um, Martians coming to Earth that had scared many people, and it had turned out to be um, a radio play. And I thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard, of course, because it's funny. I uh, also heard about War of the Worlds from my parent single working mother, cool. Marianne. Hey. Yes. And um, how she explained it to me was that people were terrified and one mother took her child <laughs> into the bathtub with a shotgun. Oh my God. And was going to kill them both so the aliens wouldn't get them. Holy crap. And that was my introduction to the idea that parents could actually kill a child. Yeah. So your thanks, mother Mom. was an interesting woman. <laughs> Holy fuck! Like that's your story. This... That's what she got out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know. Like, okay, first of all, who was this? Of course, I'm like eight years old. Ten, maybe, <laughs> maybe ten, but probably not. Yeah. Right? Um, you're never too young to introduce your child to the. You're never. Your child's never too young to be introduced to the horrors of life, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, that, I mean, so whenever I think of Orson Welles, period, Citizen Kane, shotgun, bathtub. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. It, I mean, kind of it is. Um, and, and there wasn't even like a, a hero's end to that, you know? And so my questions for my mother today, if she were still alive, would be like, "Yeah, was she a neighbor? Like, how do you know this story? <laughs> right? what, what? I didn't come across it in any of my research. So I wonder oh, if she made it up. <laughs> that, it, it, so, it, and so that's kind of also the thing that comes along with War of the Worlds, right? It's like, we yeah. all hear about it somehow. Maybe your parent tells you about it in a sane and logical way or in an absolutely insane way to let you know that I'm going to kill you, <laughs> right? I have the power of life and death over you. I have thought about murdering you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure she probably had. <laughs> I would have killed me. Um, but so, yeah. And then, you know, there comes along with this with this radio story, the whole and the nation went into a panic. And then mm-hmm. you get this thing of like, OK, the nation going into the panic was is a myth that didn't really happen. Right. And then. You, well, I mean, we'll, we'll go forward. Right. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And dive into yeah. it because, um, like I said, I started off at one point with my. Uh, my knowledge of this event Mm -hmm. and then I through the research ended up in a different place slightly different place and then 
continuing research, I was like, wait a minute, this one fucking moment doesn't make any sense. If if nothing, if it was a non-event, yep. How did this one thing happen? It sounds like an event, right? So interesting. Let's see where we're at. Um, well, so uh, so War of the Worlds to start from the beginning was a um, was written by H.G. Wells in well, it was written I don't know when it was written, but it was published initially in the U.S. at least in 1897 in Cosmopolitan magazine, and I don't know if that's the same Cosmopolitan that we have now if we still have it. But I suspect it was not. Um, and then it was published in 1898 in book form. So this was the Victorian era, which surprised me. Because imagine these people in the Victorian era thinking of, you know, little green men or whatever coming down from space to take over the world. It's kind of crazy. Uh, they only, mean, cars totally. were only introduced in like 1886. So that's that's a lot of imagination there, H.G. Wells. Um, and... Let's see. So the Orson Welles decided to put this on on his CBS Mercury Theater on the air, which is actually Mercury Theater. I found out was was Orson Welles and John Houseman's own repertory company, and it had opened in 1937 with the their adaptation of Julius Caesar in uh, Modern Dress, and then they did Mercury Theater on the air uh, on the radio around that same time um, with Orson Welles as the producer, I think, uh-huh. um, and CBS. I guess bought a series of um, um, plays for them to perform um, on CBS. So on the 30th of October in 1938, they put on War of the Worlds, which was their 17th episode of this uh, Mercury Theater show. And yeah, the the whole concept of that show was dramatic reenactments of pieces of literature, right? So you can imagine the audience size for a show like that. It's going to be small. Well, I've seen conflicting information okay. about how many people actually listened. And I've read, I've read that 12 million people listen, and I've read that 6 million people listen. And I've read that even fewer listened because there was a competing show with, I don't know who it was, I forget, but... Um, Oh, I'm excited to tell you. Oh, who? Uh, so it was uh, Edgar Bergman and oh, Charlie Edgar Bergen McCarthy. and Charlie McCarthy. Yes, right. And that was the number one show um, in America at the time. And so Mercury Theater doing their dramatic uh, reenactments of or dramatic readings of literature, right? Competing against. Mm-hmm great big giant talent like Charlie McCarthy. Um, right. That would lead you to believe that there wasn't a huge audience for the Mercury Theater on the air. Yeah. And then, um, so at the time, uh, let me see if that happened during the broadcast. But so I've got a number for us to to look at. Um, two numbers, really. But so there was a, a telephone survey done during the broadcast by an official survey company. I'm trying to get to that, uh, that company's name. And they interviewed 5,000 households as to mm-hmm. what are you listening to right now? And about mm-hmm. 2% of people or 2% of those uh, surveyed said that they were listening to 
the Orson Welles program or the Mercury program, right? Um, nobody said they were listening to a news broadcast or listening to uh-huh. a, uh, you know, uh, an invasion, basically. Right. Uh, so out of the 5,000 households that the survey reached, um, 2% of them were listening to the show and understood what they were listening to. And that, I think right. that's a really good uh, moment in time to yeah to have in our brains as, as we move forward with this yeah so and, go ahead yeah no i'm like and then what happened and then what happened <laughs> so let's talk about orson wells real quick um so he actually we could talk about his career and, and or his personal life he's an interesting person um I did not know very much about Orson Welles before I started uh, doing research for this podcast, so I found out a few a few interesting things. He um, was 23 years old at the time of War of the Worlds, and he had had a, sort of a difficult childhood. He um, his parents divorced when he was four, which was probably practically unheard of for the times. Um, and then his mother died. Who was a she was a concert pianist. Um, his mother died when he was nine. Um, which was obviously traumatic, and he had been playing music up until that point, and when she died, he sort of was like, I'm not playing, never playing music again, so he oh, stopped doing that, and his father that. took care of him, but his father was an inventor who invented some sort of light for a bicycle, which is cool, um, reminds me of The Third Policeman. Have you ever read The Third Policeman? You should. Uh, oh, my God. So L- Let me tell you, you have to listen to the audiobook if you haven't. It's called The Third Policeman? Yes, it is I'm... the most fantastic story ever written. Okay. And the audio recording of it is the most fantastic audio recording of any story ever recorded. I recommend this to everybody on Earth. Okay, you well, you just have. Anyway. Because <laughs> that's our listenership, everybody. Speaking of small shows. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> everybody on Earth. So um, that Bicycle Light reminded me of that book. And once you read the book, you'll understand why. But anyway, so he quit being an inventor and started becoming an alcoholic. And that was sort of Orson Welles' life. Yeah, what a great career change. Awesome. Um, it was Orson Welles' life until uh, he moved to um, England, I believe, in when he was 15 or 16 and he went to one of the I, I believe one of the Irish uh, theaters and told the guy there that he was a famous Broadway star and I and the guy said he didn't believe him but he thought he was audacious enough to give him a chance so I don't know whether that's true or not but he became a star on stage um, in the UK and was doing that for a while and then came back to the US where nobody knew who he was. And one of the articles I read said, let me find it, said, um, in Times Square, he was stunned to find large groups of people not mentioning him, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, Hey, same. Yeah, I know exactly. Every time I go outside, why are you not talking about me? I know you're thinking about me. Um, so he he went on to become a Shakespearean actor in the U.S. and obviously famous for very many things. But I thought his early life was was a little bit interesting. Um, but he directed and narrated the um, War of the War of the Worlds on the Mercury Theater on the air. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what actually um, happened with the how how did the broadcast um, occur? What did it sound like? How was it put together? Yeah. So um, so. Interesting for me story, right? Because I sort of like a 
a natural born storyteller, if I may, about myself. Mm-hmm. Why not a little flattery, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, how how you present a story is very important because duh, right? Sure. And the initial concept for War of the Worlds was pretty much a straight retelling of the H.G. Wells uh, book, except they swapped out some things so that instead of taking place in Europe or England, it takes place in America, right? And uh, Orson Welles was working on... So they used like Grover's Mill, New Jersey as one Yeah, which was a blind pick on a map. uh, Really? The panicking screenwriter. So it wasn't written by... Uh, Orson Welles, uh, or adapted by Orson Welles. He was the producer and the star of the show, and it was carrying his name, but they actually hired a writer um, to write the script. And the writer was feeling a little challenged because, you know, <laughs> oh my God, how, what, how do I, like, what town is this, are the Martians going to land in, right? Mm-hmm. What feels real? Um, and landing in the middle of New York City didn't feel real, Right. You wouldn't land in the middle of the most populated city if you were going to take over. You'd land on the outside, establish a base, and then work your way in, right? So that's kind of what they did. But um, uh, I think I'm giving it more thought than the writer actually did because uh, he said that he closed his eyes, uh, held a pen, and stuck it down on a map, and it landed in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Um, So that said, Orson Welles was in the middle of another production, that he was uh, directing, and I don't know if he was starring right. in it or not, but he was very busy. And so he wasn't super hands-on with the H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds um, writing and production. And this, uh, the, I was going to say the staff, they weren't the staff, the cast did a test mm-hmm. recording. And Orson Welles uh, received the recording about three days before the actual live broadcast. In those days, uh, broadcasting happened live, typically, um, and he listened to it in his hotel room and he thought it was very boring and uninteresting. And I'm going to say, mm-hmm. having tried to read it, yeah, it's pretty boring <laughs> and uninteresting. Yeah, I've tried to read it too and I never made it very far either. Yeah, yeah. And Sorry. hey, H.G. Wells, total H. respect. Wells. You are the Shakespeare of science fiction and officially the <laughs> godfather or the father of science fiction. So I get it. You know, important uh, place in history. But uh, there you go. And uh, all right, so let me think. So coincidentally, H.G. Wells, H.G. Wells, no, Orson Wells. <laughs> you'll notice the vanity there. Orson Wells picked something by H.G. Wells. It's a Wells <laughs> production and Wells is starring in it. Um, right. Somebody likes his, the sound of his own name. <laughs> um, so he had heard a radio play that was a dramatization done in the form of uh, newsflash, right? And this was not a new concept at the time. This wasn't something that was unheard of or particularly innovative. Um, right. But it also wasn't terribly common. And we had a couple of, well, we'll save us for like when we get to the cultural stuff of what's going on in that time and why did people maybe fall for this? Um, so... He really liked that concept, and he went back to the writer and was like, due to news flashes, and that's what they did. And he had the uh, the actor who was playing the newscaster, 
in the first half of the show when the aliens land and it's just live landing that happens on the radio, right? Um, uh, so in, I guess I'll backtrack here for just a half a second. Um, I listened to the first 20 minutes of the original broadcast and it was kind of cool. It sounds very old timey. People talk in that kind of way that people, I can't do it. Can you talk old timey talk? It's so official sound. <laughs> I don't even know what it would sound like. Um, it's kind of like, see, I can do it if I'm not thinking about it. Um, it's kind of like, you there, why are you standing there like that? You shouldn't be standing oh, there. You saying. should be standing over there, right? <laughs> can it, uh, certainly the mid-Atlantic accent, but also that sort of that staccato speech. Um, right. And so they had the actor who was playing the newscaster listen to um, the Hindenburg reporting, which happened uh, live, right? And, that's kind of morbid. Yeah, morbid, but uh, also kind of great idea. Um, yeah, that, effective, apparently. Oh, well, it, I mean, and that recording, uh, 100 years yeah, ago-ish. certainly effective. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, it holds a place in audio history. People go back to, yes. I think his last name is Morrison, but don't hold me to that. I did write it down. Yeah, Herbert Morrison, which is an unfortunate name for a beautiful soul, because when mm -hmm. you listen to his his reporting of the Hindenburg, it's mm -hmm. really affecting. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know... Uh, I tr I'm we'll just cut this part out because here I am struggling not to make a joke about old timey people uh, sounding like human beings who are moved by tragedy and it probably wouldn't play very well as a joke. <laughs> okay, uh, Stephen. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So um, uh, so that's the first half of the show. The aliens are landing. I'm a guy. I'm reporting it. Um, we sort of knew that something had happened on Mars. There were these explosions and we've, you know, space scientists have been monitoring these ex timed explosions on Mars that seem too intelligent to be natural. Right. And that's sort of the clue that like, oh, aliens are coming to Earth. Right. Although in the show, nobody knows what's happening. There's just these weird explosions on Mars, and then suddenly something lands from the sky, and then uh, tentacled monsters come out with ray guns and <laughs> uh, set people on fire. And you know what? They use a heat ray. And have you been reading in the news lately about heat rays? I have been uh, reading about heat rays, and I'm going to say, yeah, not surprised. Um, <laughs> I really... You know, I mean, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. It's not funny that the government wants to use heat rays on its own citizens. But to, to even imagine that that such a thing as a heat ray exists, it's crazy. Totally. Right. And um, so, this is not what I thought the future would be like if we had heat rays, that we would be using them against ourselves. I mean, or you wouldn't think that we'd be using them against uh, peaceful protesters who are Certainly rightfully not. assembled. And but. Uh, I mean, we're just going <sighs> to say, yeah, that um, is a moment in time that will <laughs> okay. be more important in the future than it feels today, right? Yeah. Because that's the tipping point of when we went authoritarian or when democracy really won. Let's see what happens. Mm. It'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, God. I Yeah, I just want to beat my head against the wall. I really fucking do. Um, I know. Politics anymore. Uh, okay, but so that's why we're doing this podcast, because it's a great escape from the grim realities of uh, Trumpian uh, dystopia or utopia mm. for our racist followers <laughs> out there. Um, okay, so let's see. We don't have so, any racist followers because if we if we do, I'm going to say fuck you, us off. and now they're gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not interested. Don't need it. Don't want it. Don't care. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay. Let's see here, and we'll get more political later. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. And so weirdly, this kind of uh, tags in here. H.G. Wells, who wrote War of the Worlds. Um, was born in 1866, and as Juliet mentioned, Victorian era. He predicted not only lasers slash heat rays, but also email, audiobooks, television, Sweet. airplanes, genetic engineering, and nuclear weapons. So, so he's like the Leonardo da Vinci of his day. I mean, isn't it just it's it's crazy that one guy could kind of cough up a future that so closely aligns with. Uh, Maybe I should read own, this book. Right? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, so hats off to him, which is another reason why he's also considered the father of science fiction. Uh, and let's see here. Okay, so I forget where we're at, except the aliens had landed. We had the broadcast. The actors are acting. This is all happening live. And the second half of the show follows a much more conventional. Oh wait, so I want to say something here. Okay. So the the um, the Martians, you know, came out and attacked using this heat ray, and the guy, the reporter, um, the guy acting the reporter at the scene was describing what was going on until his audio uh, feed abruptly went dead. Thank you. And yes, that was how that part ended. Totally forgot and about that. What? Yeah, and what that reminded me of was I don't know if you ever listened to Art Bell. Oh, yeah. But huge fan of Art Bell. Um, in 1997, I was living in Richmond, Richmond Annex. It was the middle of the night, and I was listening to Art Bell, you know, getting ready to go to sleep, whatever. And um, he got this call from the Area 51 line, which he used to have all these lines that you would call in on, you know, east of the Rockies, west of the Rockies, Area 51, or Ghost Line, or whatever. And you had to be, when you called that line, you absolutely had to be talking about whatever it was that the line was for, or he would th- throw you out. So he got a call on the Area 51 line from this dude who was totally panicky, who said he had worked in Area 51 until about a week ago, and that aliens were um, were here on Earth. They had sort of uh, hitchhiked along with one of the space trips that we took, and the aliens were controlling the military now, and they were going to cause worldwide disasters, and areas of the world would be destroyed completely, and the government could move people to safer areas now, but they were doing nothing. And then he said, they'll triangulate on this position really, really soon. And just after he said that, the call feed abruptly went dead. And not only that, but the entire satellite carrying the Art Bell show went down. You and other that shows. Live? I heard that live. I've heard and the I replay was terrified. of that. I was so scared because the satellite went down and, and it, was, it was news, you know, because other shows went down along with the satellite. And uh, we never figured out what that was all about. That you is know, fucking insane. However many insane. years later. That was crazy. It was great. It was the best Arpel show ever. And Arpel had a lot of great shows. So I knew uh, from, from replays, right, of, yeah, of yeah. the Arpel show. Uh, that that event had happened and I knew that his uh, satellite went down but I thought that was just his radio tower I didn't realize like a real official one went down 
No, a real official one went down, and it was on the news. The you know the the next day that the satellite had gone down, and they got it up again like a few days later or whatever. Whatever. My memory of that isn't so great. Oh, yeah, uh, it's better than mine. And so here's what I was going to say. I'm like, okay, you know what? It's real easy to set up a, a scenario where I'm going to fake oh, call sure. into a show and be, I'll be sure. triangulated on and ah, right? But then to take <laughs> yeah. out like what half of the West Coast or ten stations? <laughs> yeah, uh, nutty. That's taking a joke a little too far. That um, is excellent radio, though. Oh my God, you have given me my Google obsession for today. I am going to like <laughs> find out. Did he apologize for that? Because we could use it if he did. Did who apologize? Art Bell? Oh, the Art. No, no. I mean, we don't, we don't know what happened. Nobody ever took responsibility, I don't think. I think they might have had a few people call in and say it was them, but I don't think it really was. <laughs> no, because so he's going to call in and admit to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi, government. It was me. You can arrest me. I'm fine. Send me to jail. Um, okay. So, but, yeah, anyway, before I interrupted you, you were talking oh, about what the second half of the show. Talking nonstop. But you actually raised <laughs> probably the most important point, right, for if you're me as, as mm -hmm. like a storyteller, right, a wannabe storyteller. And that is, sure, using new flashes wasn't innovative for telling a story on the radio. It, it was done. People, it wasn't Orson Welles' creation. But what he did uh, that was new is he allowed prolonged silence in a radio program. And that's what mm. lent it credibility. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever listened to like an, or watched a movie from 1928, 1930-something when sound was new. But in early movies everybody's fucking talking because sound is such a new thing, right? Um, and same is true on radio. You didn't have dead air. There's no point in silence on radio. You'll lose your listeners like that. So mm -hmm. this, this moment of intentional and prolonged silence, actually a couple of uh, cast members uh, who shared memories of this broadcast uh, mentioned that they felt like they were just hanging in the air forever, wow. right? And really, when you're listening to to the show, that moment of silence is three seconds, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe five, maybe, right? Um, so very, very effective. And then the second half of the show is just straightforward, regular, dramatic literature reading on you know on the radio where you say things like i don't know what what they said like he thought or you know she said like uh, they, they put right. in they put in things that wouldn't happen in real life i guess right. it's a stupid way i should have found a word for for that it's not um exposition hi yeah that's probably the word i'm looking for uh, good word sure i'll use it sounds good um and so, I mean, essentially, that's that's the story, that's the show, right? Um, but then you had this weird thing that maybe was happening, maybe wasn't happening, and maybe you will take, do you want to um, tell me that that part? Like the listeners, how, how do people believe this, not believe it? Well, um, so... 
the radio program had um, music. Um, it was supposed to be, a, well, okay, in the beginning of the broadcast, he said, this is, this is Orson Welles, whatever, this is the Mercury Theater on the air, we're pre- presenting um, a adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel, and that was the introduction, basically, and then they put music on. So there was music for a while, and then the music was interrupted by a news broadcast, which started talking about, you know, we saw um, some lights coming, weird lights coming from Mars, like maybe there was an explosion, and by the way, something uh, landed in Grover's Mill, New Jersey, and we don't know what it is, back to the music. And then they would have the music for, you know, a long period of time to build up the tension, like you were saying, with the silences. And then someone else would cut in and say, you know, well, we uh, understand there's this cylinder in, in Grover's Mill. We're not sure what it is and blah, blah, blah. And then they go back to the music for a long time and people listening would start to be like, what's going on? And, and then gradually the, the news updates became increasingly alarming until they started talking about uh, an alien attack where the, um, the people from Mars or I don't guess you call them people. You call them Martians. <laughs> the Martians came out of the cylinder and started to attack using this heat ray that we've discussed before. The Democrats and from Mars. Were, the Democrats from Mars. <laughs> and that the, they'd taken over the U.S. military and they were, it was all spreading out throughout the United States. And um, people, did people become panicky, Theo? I'm going to say it's a big yes and no, right? And so... Before we, well, there was one woman that dragged her child into a bathtub with a shotgun, right? I mean, that's a fact. We know that's 100% historically accurate. (laughs) That happened. Oh, my God. Um, But uh, so before, because it's so easy for me to make fun of people. I love it. I live for it. It's the reason I breathe, right? And so before we started, before I start making fun of people, right? Um, I would like to remind me and all of our listeners who might also like to make fun of people. Mm-hmm. I've had COVID four times this year, I thought. You have not. Okay. Well, you know, scratchy throat. <laughs> thought, oh, yeah, I have a cough. Maybe I've, do I feel feverish? Am I a little flu? Yeah. Is something yeah. up? Do I have COVID? Right? I mean, a moment. Not like... A couple of days of, oh my God, I have COVID, right? But just like, oh my God, is this the first stage of COVID? So it's very easy to put yourself in the center of a story. It's very easy to, I don't want to say fall victim, but it's very easy to buy into hype. It's very easy to, it's very easy to believe. It's Mm -hmm. very easy to believe. And we all do it every day, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yes, people are gullible. Or I don't naive or trusting, right? Whatever those words are, and so Stupid. Juliet is correct that uh, the show was presented as fiction. It was not presented as. Let me let me rephrase that because that's probably not very clear for for people following along at home. Um, when the show started, there was an introduction, and everybody understood through the introduction that this was H.G. Wells' broadcast of War of the Worlds, right? There were commercial breaks. The first one happened 35 minutes into the broadcast. Um, At the end of the broadcast, there was a thank you for having listened to our play, right? Mm -hmm. So, So that 
that breaking the fourth wall thing, that letting people know that this is fake, was mm -hmm. definitely said three different times. But then also, as Juliet pointed out, the structure of the show being newscast and given the era in the 19, uh, 1938, right, uh, this is pre-World War One, by about a few months, uh, maybe nine months. About a year. World War Two. I'm sorry, I said World War I. Um, yeah, yeah so a, year. a little less than a year, but um, people were very attuned to news broadcasts, news flashes, right? Things happening in Europe. And a lot of America was first-generation Americans, so a lot of people grew up in households that spoke Polish or spoke German or, you know, we're from, I only know those two countries. Is there another country in the world? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Um, but, you know, from someplace not America. And um, so people were on edge to begin with. And this also ties into how people could believe that America was being attacked. Um because right. there was the idea in the air that an attack was kind of imminent. And so the, the question that cultural historians ask themselves is not, oh, were people afraid of Martians, but was this really a reaction to the fear of invasion, right? Um, and clearly it was. Um, That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I if mean, you're... kind of me either. I never put this Orson Welles, uh, I almost said podcast because he was so innovative, <laughs> his podcast, uh, into any kind of a linear timeline in America. Like, what was happening? Mm -hmm. It's just sort of like, oh, it's kind of pre-Halloween. And I don't think of aliens as Halloween for either right. Valentine's Day. Right. Right. Totally. I love them so much. Um, <laughs> But it but, would be like now, if, if, if the Martians came now, I mean, I'd be like, sure, whatever. It's uh, par for the course. <laughs> oh, fuck. How are we not even talking about the Venusians? <laughs> right? right. I mean, hi, we maybe have uh, neighbors on Venus. Um, <laughs> amazing. Uh, we'll find out. And then we'll kill them. We'll find out. Um, Probably. Yeah, I mean, for sure, right? We're going to send a satellite into the skies in Venus, and we're going to smash the only existing other life in this universe with against yeah, the whole. Yeah, we'll of kill our... them inadvertently by our own stupidity if we don't kill them on purpose. Right. <laughs> but maybe they taste delicious. Maybe. That might be the... Or maybe they're, maybe they're more advanced than us, and they kill us, which would be anesthesia, not anesthesia, euthanasia at this point. Maybe they're made out of gold. <laughs> we'll harvest them okay so we'll save the venusians for when they apologize to us for existing or you know yeah, having been right. quiet all okay. these years having killed us all <laughs> um well i mean if covid can't do it the venusians won't amateurs <laughs> um okay it's so where days. were we at so yes uh, the timeline of of orson wells happening pre-world war ii so americans right. are kind of on edge right and a lot of americans at that bit. time were first generation certainly second generation uh, from europe um and so what was happening in europe was of interest although we didn't want to get involved um and uh, let's see. So 
I guess what I'm doing here is I'm talking about how was it credible? Why could people have believed into it? First of all, humans are, were kind of gullible. Um, secondly, the era, what was happening politically, people were on edge. Um, the format being done in uh, news flashes. And I had one other, what I thought was pretty good point. And I can't find it. Uh, I tried to do the fancy thing that you did with digital notes. And it works and then it doesn't work for me. Um, One thing that Orson Welles himself brought up when he was talking about how surprised he was that people had believed it was that the the familiarity of the fable quote, within the American idiom of Mars and the Martians, unquote, was such that anyone would know that it was fake because there there was so much going around at the time. There was the not only the H.G. Wells story, but everything that had come from H.G. Wells, like comic books and um, I, not movies, I suppose, but you know, just the media of the time was um, not unfamiliar with this fable of, of men from Mars. So he had assumed that everyone would think it was just another one of those. Yeah. And so, uh, well, I don't want to jump into uh, to the apology yet, but I guess maybe a quick recap. Um, and then it probably just makes sense to move into to his apology because he raised a really interesting point there. Um, so he's got this, uh, the broadcast, there's the news flashes, there's the era, it's pre-World War II, people are on edge. Um, they do the broadcast and he goes immediately from that broadcast through a back door, which will be kind of important later if I remember to raise this point, um, and straight into another production, right? So he's okay. working and he's working all night long. And when wow. he comes out of his production, his other production, right, he walks into a room full of newspaper reporters who all want to know what the fuck just happened. How could you do this to America? Who the fuck are you to have done this to America? Right. Um, they were a little nicer than that. But uh, if you watch the apology, which was, I don't know if it was televised, but it was certainly recorded on video because that's how I saw it. Um, mm-hmm. it. It is really interesting because you can see on his face like he didn't do he didn't intentionally set out to trick people um and i'll give i'll play my hand right now which is why i accept his apology he didn't (laughs) intentionally set Uh out to trick people his apology perhaps is a little insincere right Mm -hmm. because you can sort of see on his face he's shell-shocked for sure. looks mm-hmm. to me like he's, mm-hmm. he's really kind of shocked. But also there's the whole, I'm going to be famous <laughs> floating in his mind. And you can see it. Like, <laughs> I might be in trouble, but I am really famous now. Like, and this set his career. Um, yes. I watched a couple of uh, recordings from uh, telephone operators who were on switchboards that night, these were interviews that took place in the 1980s with uh, women who were working as telephone operators in 1938, and they were talking yes, about yes. their I saw that. their um, War of the Worlds night. Uh, 
Yeah. And they did get panicked calls. They did have people did. calling them saying like, how many people are dead? What's going on? You know, is this real? Um, yeah. And, and police actually showed up at the CBS studios to try and shut the program down. And so, you know, there, there was there was stuff going on. Exactly. And so that's where I now uh, I'm shaking my fist in the air and that doesn't work on a <laughs> podcast, but damn, it feels good. That's where I really, I'm mad. Okay, so I always thought there was a little bit of a panic, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. growing up, I thought there was a massive panic, right? I thought there were Mm -hmm. like, everybody in Manhattan had just run out into the street, naked screaming, right? Um, (laughs) Right. And then I found out as an adult that, no, it wasn't really that bad. And it kind of, there wasn't any panic at all. And then doing the research into this, uh, a lot of the mm-hmm. research that I tripped over was, uh, mm-hmm. which was Slate Magazine, High Slate. I should have cited <laughs> my source, um, my single source outside of Wikipedia. And I did watch a, a documentary. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they kind of like even put a pin in that idea that there was any panic at all. Mm-hmm. They're sort of like, listen, maybe two people were nervous, but that's kind of <laughs> it. And yeah, then, I don't think that's true. Right. No, how can it be true when the fucking police show up in the middle of your broadcast? Right. And the, I was reading MassLive.com, and they, they were talking about what happened in Massachusetts during the broadcast. And they say an ambulance was dispatched after a woman collapsed. A caller to the Boston Daily Globe claimed to see distant fires in New York. A New England utility received frantic calls to cut the power in blackout cities from the site of advancing alien foes. And one guy uh, from Massachusetts managed to get $3.25 together for a train ticket, only to figure out 60 miles later that he had been <laughs> tricked. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there absolutely were people who thought this thing was real. To, to, and who and who panicked? And um, yeah, the, and uh, okay. And so, um, enter the academians, right? We'll backtrack a little bit here. Enter the scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this scholar in uh, from Princeton. Was, okay, so. Let's look at this idea that the nation panicked, right? The entire mm-hmm. nation panicked. Um, where does this idea come from? Um, how and why? And mm-hmm. so, um, again, if only about 2% of households surveyed, and that's important, um, but still 5,000 homes were called right. during the broadcast, right? During that time uh, if only 2% of households were listening to the Mercury Theater, how is it that the, you know, there was this widespread panic? And part of what lends any credence to this is a historian from Princeton um, named Hadley Cantrell, who in 1940, so about two years after the broadcast, he was like, I'd like to look at that moment in time and I'd like to understand it culturally. What was happening? I mean, it got, you know, the war was happening, but like how, how big was this panic? And he determined that there were at least 1 million people who were frightened, right? So not heard, not, not, uh, 
were aware of the broadcast, but one million people who were actually afraid, who were who were terrified of the broadcast. Um, and he uses a source that surveyed people who didn't have telephones and lived in uh, underserviced regions, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, they went out to basically the middle of nowhere and talked to people two years after the event to ask them, what did you think of the War of the Worlds podca- broadcast? Why? 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 It's not a podcast. <laughs> Jesus. Um, and he wrote a book called The Invasion from Mars, which talks about how America was terrified of this uh, this podcast, this broadcast. I did it again. I'm going to write it on a post-it note and stick it to my computer. <laughs> um, no biggie. And that coupled, so uh, so the fact that a academician from Princeton wrote a academic work on this, right? His work is now cited in communication classes uh, from from when it was published to today, and it perpetuates this idea that there was this massive national. Panicked response, Uh, but Hadrill sort of conflates frightened and excited and disturbed with Uh, panicked, right? I see. So you either listened and you had no emotion, or if you had any emotional response outside of happy, then you were naked in the streets, covered with mud. Right, right. That's an interesting survey there. Yeah. Um, And then the other piece that sort of lends, uh, that helps build this, oh my God, there was this national panic, is what was happening culturally at the time with radio. And so we're just after the Great Depression, and radio was the new toy, it was the new format, it was the internet of its day, right? And newspapers were losing advertisers. So the minute newspapers had an opportunity to beat up on radio, they took it. There Mm. were a total of, uh, I think it was 12,500 articles in various newspapers for the first couple of days after the broadcast concerning how horrible this broadcast was and how terrible radio was. And the New York Daily News has this it's it's sort of the iconic newspaper front front page uh from uh 1938 concerning war of the worlds and it has orson wells standing up with his arms outstretched looking a bit like saint francis of assisi or jesus Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. he's looking up at the sky his palms are facing towards the camera and he's got this giant shadow behind him he looks both frightening and persecuted uh huh and then right next to him is a photo of a and a, a large photo right this takes up a good quarter of i'll even say a third of the page there's a woman with her arm in a cast right She's one of the victims. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's just it. Wow, it's crazy. And the guy who wrote this newspaper article for the Daily News about fake radio war stirs terror through the U.S. I'm reading the headline, <laughs> right? In his memoir, 
um, which he published like 20 something years later, he writes about jumping into a taxi the night of the broadcast to get down to the studio so he can do some reporting and the streets were empty. There was not massive panic yeah. in New York, yeah. right? But if you're going to believe his newspaper, fake news. I'm just <laughs> going to say it right now. Thanks, Donald. You gave fake us something. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's hard to it, it's uh, hard to sort of reconcile that with the reports from the 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 um, AT and T ladies and the ambulance companies and the police and everything that said that people were actually um, panicked. Yeah. And so, you know, I, so clearly it's a case of not either or A or B, but you know, some people were truly panicked and we'll never get a, a handle on what that number looks like, but it was enough of a national panic that the police showed up in the middle of the broadcast. Now, H.G. Wells claims, you know, he didn't know that because he was shepherded out of a back door um, after the podcast so he could get to the next studio. So he had no idea how big the ruckus was. So let's talk about his apology. Yes. So he... um, Right, like you're saying, he was he had been working all night, and he had said he had like three hours of sleep, if that. And he came out into this group of of reporters who were looking at him, saying, "Why did you do this thing? And you know, what was your idea?" Um, and I love there's there's a photo that I just love that has him sitting there looking to his right, and the, there are all these guys around him, you know, wearing their hats in the style of the time, and uh, it's just a it's just a gorgeous photo, and the expression on his face is is sort of one of um, false concern <laughs> he's the Susan Collins of broadcasting <laughs> and I agree with you I think he may or may not have intentionally I think he would have if he had thought of doing it intentionally I think he probably would have so I don't know whether he did or not but he certainly it was not beyond him to do um something like this as a stunt and I think that when he found out the reception that it was supposedly getting he was thrilled Oh, uh, yeah. 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 And his apology, he said, he claimed that he didn't didn't know what was going on because he was busy. Which is the best thing to throw into your apology if you ever have to make one. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't. I was busy. Yeah. I was busy. I didn't know. (laughs) I didn't know what was going on. This thing that I caused, I wasn't aware of the effect that it had. But no, he, he actually claimed that he was terribly shocked. And he was also deeply shocked and deeply regretful. And, you know, why they asked him, why did he give the town's American names? And he said, oh, well, you know, it made sense. Uh, Wells gave it, gave them British names. And so we were adapting it for the American audience and we gave them American names. And they weren't even exact American names. They were changed a little bit to, to hopefully prevent people from thinking that it was true. So I think that actually that was something that the legal department had made them do. Um, change the names because they initially wanted to make the names actual towns. Yeah, the so they company. they ran the script as as you do with any script, right? Yeah. It gets yeah. run through legal because there's no point in making all this money if you're going to have to give it away in a lawsuit, right? Mm-hmm. So let's not get sued. Um, and what I loved about his apology, which I wish people would use today, right? We're so we're so ready to be sorry for everything. And so, mm-hmm. and I'm speaking for myself, so ready to be offended as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
like, yeah, my, my outrage machine is totally in high gear. Um, but I loved his apology in that he, regardless of his sincerity, right? Just like how he presents it, it's, or not presents it, but how it's structured. Like he's sorry that, that there was this reaction. He's very surprised because they did Dracula previously and they didn't have this kind of a response. Mm -hmm. And he had high hopes for Dracula. Um, here's a quote, mm -hmm. you know, um, he hoped the audience would react to Dracula as they do in a movie, but he did, I don't mm -hmm. know that they did. Meaning he hoped to, well, I guess this gets into maybe he did it on purpose. Good, okay, we're tripping over this right now. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so what is it that I'm loving? I'm loving that he's insulting the audience at the same time by saying, <laughs> like, I, I just don't understand. We're talking about an invasion so from Mars. <laughs> Yeah, right. Right? <laughs> exactly. Who, why exactly. don't I tell you marshmallows are coming to life and jumping out of the pantry <laughs> with knives? Like, are you going to run? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say that. But but what I love is is this idea of like, okay, yes, I'm sorry, but here's some logic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? No, it was a good apology. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a well done apology, and he was really well spoken. And he was he was for a man on three hours of sleep or less, he did a great job. Um, although he may have prepared in advance for something like this, maybe he did know what was going on, and maybe he he did get a chance to uh, think about what he was going to say to the reporters before he went out there in front of everyone and and uh, apologize. So, but in any case, I think it was a well done apology. And as to whether or not I accept the apology. Yes. Um, you know, I do, but for two reasons. The first reason is I started thinking about, well, what does it mean to accept an apology? And I realized I didn't know. And I went and I looked it up. And what I read was that to accept an apology means that you're no longer angry or resentful about whatever happened. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not angry or resentful about what um, Orson Welles did. It doesn't have any effect on my life. And I'm um, not angry that some people were upset because no matter what you do, somebody's going to get upset. Um, and the second thing is that I think he did it for art. And I think that means a lot. And for that reason, I'm mainly, I'm willing to forgive him. You know, I like that. I never really looked at apologies in terms of, like, what does it mean to accept? I've been looking at it as, yeah. like, what does it mean to issue? Right. Right. And then how do I feel about that? But, yeah, kind of in yes. general. Yeah, I like that. Um and of course, I, you know, I gave away my hand early. I'm sure everybody was just right. like waiting. What's he going to say? Um, <laughs> how, how could you accept that apology? No, I totally accept it. And, uh, and one point that really jumped out at me from his apology, other than sort of like, I can't believe people are gullible, which he said without saying, <laughs> um, uh -huh. was radio is new and we're still learning about it. Mm. And I've heard that recently on things like social media from Mark Zuckerman, right? right? Uh, oh, this is new. Oh, I I don't know. We don't, we're learning. Interesting. You know? We're not learning about social media anymore. I mean, not as much. It's been at least 20 years. I, so it, anyway, oh, I'm not yeah. gonna argue with Mark Zuckerberg, so. Oh my God, you're right. 25 years, really. Holy, wow. 
<laughs> God, stop talking. Don't tell me that. That is horrible. <laughs> I know, I know. I can't believe it's 2020 and here we are at our advanced age of 29. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We look great for 29. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at apologiesaccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted and on Instagram at Apologies.accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted. And fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>